Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tinkser. We at Hospitality Mavericks are here to inspire leaders to create heart-centered and profitable businesses from the inside out, the kind that both employees and customers love and support. In this episode, I have a true gentleman, a very experienced hotelier and a big influencer when it comes to hospitality. It is Robin Shepard, the president at Bespoke Hotels. And they operate more than 70 properties worldwide and stands at the UK's largest independent hotel group. All the hotels have their own style and local influence. The common factor is great hospitality. Rob and I talked about his amazing journey in hospitality and how he and his team has navigated the pandemic up to now. How they have been part of supporting NHS workers develop new revenue streams such as dark kitchens, home delivery, and much more. We also discuss how general hospitality market would evolve and what it means for hotels. Robin gives his version of what the winners of the futures look like. And he also says that it's important that we use this lesson from the pandemic to change behavior, both as individuals as businesses. It's a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call to change our behavior so we have a more positive impact on our planet. Robin gives some very strong advice in the end of the conversation. One is listening to all your stakeholders to really understand what their needs is. You need to meet their needs before you can meet yours. But before you tune in, why not sign up to our Maverick Community newsletter and get some great insights and leadership tools at hospitalitymavericks.com. If you'd like to have a chat with me, please book a slot on hospitalitymavericks.com I would love to talk with people that also want to build a better future for our industry and beyond. Please also join the Game Changer Facebook group if you want to be the forefront what progressive leaders are up to in hospitality right now. And don't worry if you didn't get all of this, there will be links in the show notes. So grab headphones, coffee, notebook and enjoy! Welcome to the uh, Hospitality Maverick podcast. We are now uh, doing the first interview after we hit, I don't know if we actually hit a second lockdown or what's going on. Uh, as I said to my guests before we went on here, I'm, I'm, I, I, I dropped out of that broadcast yesterday because I just got very confused and I just needed somebody to digest it a bit and come up with me what the overview looked like. But today's guest, we're very lucky to get a bit of his time. Uh, he is uh, definitely an industry influencer and uh, has a huge experience within the industry over 40 years. It's Robin Shepard, the uh, president of Bespoke Hotels. So Robin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Michael. How do you do? I'm very well, Robin, being a very lovely contained in my home here in, in, in Brighton. Where are you about in the, in the world right now, Robin? I'm in uh, cloudy Oxfordshire at the moment, just north of uh, Woodstock. So a pretty part of the world, but uh, not looking at its bloomiest today. No, no, we are we are hitting the, the winter and lots of people talk about hospitality and, and the winter. I just presented you as a, an, a, a, you know, a big player in the industry. So for people that never heard about Robin and Bespoke Hotels, can you just give a, a short overview about who you are, your background and Bespoke Hotels and and what you have been up to? For sure. Um, I, I've been in the industry for 50 years. Uh, started out um, with various holiday jobs in hotels, got the bug, 
went off to Oxford Brooks, um, did three years there, and joined British Transport Hotels, which in those days uh, had extraordinary, wonderful properties like Glen Eagles, the Old Course in St Andrews, the Welcome in Stratford, the Great Western at Paddington, um, and so on. And I had a period of time with them. I got into the country house movement uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, um, and opened a stunning property in North Wales called Bodiscathlon Hall, which was still aesthetically arguably the best hotel I've ever been involved in from a beauty perspective. And then really sort of hit a jackpot personally in that I was appointed as the general manager of the Ligon Arms in Broadway, uh, which remains uh, one of the grandest and most influential country house hotels um, over the last 50 years. And I learned from a very hard taskmaster called Douglas Barrington. That hotel reminded me of how much I still had to learn and what I had to do to become proficient in my job. Press the fast forward button. I was very fortunate to work for both Forte and Hilton. Um, and eventually, uh, after running a number of hotels as a general manager, including the Royal Bath in Ascot and the Bath Spa Hotel, I became a regional director for Forte and then decided to set up um, my own hotel company with a, a gentleman called Hayden Phantom, uh, who remains my partner 20 years later. Uh, we've had two arguments in the time that we since we first set up the company. Sadly, he was right on both occasions, which is really annoying. <laughs> but we discovered a sort of complementary skill set quite early, uh, and we now preside over a company which operates just over 100 hotels in the UK, which range from 25-bedroom bucolic coastal hotels in South Cornwall to big 200-bedroom hotels in central cities like Manchester and so on. So um, quite a diverse group of hotels. We call them bespoke for that very reason. Um, and we like to celebrate the difference between the hotels rather than the similarities. So unlike Premier Inn or Indigo or um, uh, other other brands which are very distinct, we've, we've gone the other way and said, let's celebrate the local hero nature of each of those hotels. And we're still doing that today. So it's a 20 years journey and we're, we're um, still going strong. Is that because the the hotels you took over had that element, or did you find uh, individual local traits and things you thought that the hotel should live when you took them over? I, I think what we've tended to concentrate on is hotels with character, either um, because of the nature of the historic building or the surroundings and gardens that the building was situated in, um, and also because very few other people were doing it. There were a lot of operating companies out there sitting behind um, an Accor or an IHG brand, but there wasn't anybody else really focusing on the independent hotel and cherishing that independence. So we deliberately set out to be a soft brand, which means that we don't stick our stamp through absolutely everything. We're quite prescriptive behind the scenes, so how we recruit train, report the numbers, um, do sales and marketing is to a template and we put play uh, various notes off that template in order to put the level of personalization and customization into the guest experience. But so varied are the hotels that we've accumulated. We're looking at coaching inns and pubs to deluxe five-star hotels and Michelin stars. So uh, you can't just have a one-size-fits-all approach to those properties. You have to customize And as we quickly realized, make everything as bespoke as you possibly can. 
And I, I guess you know, uh, you know, that's a trend that's over the the, the the last couple of years has been highly appreciated. People because they go for these unique experiences. They they want to say they has been in in a unique place. They are not into the cookie cutter maybe experience. It's it's slowly going out. Uh, is is that something you've seen? You know, pre pandemic uh, was really was the trend that was taking off. We saw a lot of other big operators introducing brands like Autograph and Edition and Signature and so on. So it wasn't necessarily a surprise to see some of the big players discovering that uh, you get more value locally if you celebrate the local nature of your property. Um, but I think it's been quite an interesting process for us to sticking to our, our core beliefs that we want to have hotels that are unique and play a strong part locally and engage with that local community um there can be not arrogant but certain uh, assumption set in some companies that say this is the way we do things all our bedrooms will be this size um and we we want a, a world in which everything is similar um and i just think that the consumer now is after an experience it's also i guess the difference between want and need sometimes you stay in a hotel Uh, which you need to stay in because it's convenient to something else you're doing and it satisfies that need. But when you want to stay in a hotel because it's part of um, an experience or a treat or a celebration, then uh, that's really where we come into our own because we're all about making people feel that they're having a personalized experience. What about uh, you know when you talk about independent? Are, are you are you viewed as an independent hotel because you you're quite a large player? But does people have the the perception that you are independent? And the the the, the whole thing about being independent has really come up again and really been escalated during the pandemic. The importance of local independent and so on. But do people perceive you as independent as well? It depends who you're talking to. I think if you talk to the individual consumer, they see the properties as being independent and might have a faint smile because they're a little bit aware that Bespoke might be behind or affiliated as a consortia like Aurelia Chateau or Best Loved as a, as a sort of endorsement, if you like. But I don't think we've ever wanted to appear as though we were um, so overtly uh, domineering that the brand was um, overruling everything else. So we'd much rather be the Chester Grosvenor Hotel in Chester, which happens to be operated in small letters by Bespoke Hotels, rather than the Bespoke Hotel Chester. And that will continue. And we're very fortunate we've produced some exciting brands along the way, brands of one. So as an example, we produced a lovely hotel in Manchester called Hotel Gotham, which has been around for five and a half years now and trades extraordinarily well in spite of COVID. And that's very rich in terms of its storytelling, its its uh, whimsical history um, and its irreverence. And there seems to be a very strong audience for that kind of escapism in, in the Manchester market. Um, We had opened a second hotel also in Manchester called Hotel Brooklyn, which bizarrely, half a mile from Gotham down a street called the New New York Street. You couldn't make it up, could you? But anyway, no. Brooklyn has uh, opened at the end of February uh, during Storm Daniel this year. And sadly, five weeks later, we had to close it. We have managed to reopen, but it's still never really got beyond its baby steps. And we're just hoping we might be able to give the hotel a gallop and really put it through its paces once uh, something like normal trading conditions return. But that could be quite some way off yet. 
that leads me actually into to the next thing because we, we as I normally say to all guests that you know we have to touch on the pandemic it's here if you want it or, or not and it, it dealt us some very difficult card how has the pandemic treated you beside that you know you had to turn down a, a new hotel very quickly to hibernation but what what else had happened because you you were, you were a large business you were you are covering different areas of the, of the UK and so on how has this, uh, you know, I'll call it mayhem, impacted you over the last seven months? Uh, it's been beastly. I can't put a, a brave face on it. It's just been horrible on a humane level, on a physical level, on a cash level. Uh, it's been devastating. And I suppose what I still am astonished about is how people have, um, particularly Donald Trump, have failed to take personal re- responsibility from the fact that each one of us as human beings, have become a potential lethal weapon. Out of respect for others, we should do everything in our powers to make sure that if we had a latent ability to give COVID-19 to someone else, we should be doing everything in our power to protect other people around us from getting it. It's not the other way around. It's not what effect are people having on you. It's what effect are you having on people. And I guess if you can get that over that mindset, you might have a more salient and sustainable approach to the illness. The, the tragedy is it's going to be with us and in our lives for quite some time. But there's no quick and easy fix. Once we've adjusted to that, we have to come up with a new reinvented normal. Um, we've had a level of largesse from the government, which softened the blow a little bit as we went into lockdown thus far. But the government have obviously worked out it's cheaper to have the whole population on the dole um, and pay them minimum wage than to protect jobs which are perishable. Uh, with a higher wage. So we are being treated like very low-level cattle with very little empathy um, at the moment. Um, I don't want to get into my feelings of of the government and their handling of of this um, crisis, but all I will say is I think they could have made much better decisions and will be responsible and held in sole regard for the paucity of those decisions for generations to come. What I had meant for you from a you know capacity point of view, because I get you had occupancy capacity that was pre-pandemic and during pandemic and you had the summer. I guess it's, has that all been turned upside down, how you do revenue management, how you do, how you predict anything? Because I guess hotels have always, always have seasons where you could predict some things and now it's just totally unpredictable, I guess. Well, the sadness is for, Pretty much every one of our hotels, 2019, have been a tremendous year. Very high occupancies, uh, great room rates, lots of food and beverage spent, um, and close to full employment. So it was a joyous, joyous time. We started to feel a slightly colder wind blowing just after Christmas, and suddenly it became quite chilly in February as the news that COVID might be coming started to dawn on people. So by the time we got to March the 23rd, the reality of having to close all our businesses was absolute, and we had a new reality to contend with. Most of our endeavours were focused on mental welfare of our staff, reassuring our guests that they would get their money back or a voucher to revisit, and we wouldn't be enforcing draconian cancellation arrangements. Um, But that wasn't easy, because quite often you're contracting with people through third parties, and you can't immediately control the uh, responsibilities of those third parties to your customers. So there was quite a bit of education between us and online travel agents, as an example. The reality is that we put everybody we could onto furlough. 
um, we as the main board continue to, to, to work because we'd laid all our staff off. So in terms of detailed work and day-to-day, we had an enormous amount of work to do. We did, however, manage to secure a large piece of rescue business, um, which has kicked in now. Um, this all was triggered in March. So just at the time that we were closing all our hotels down, we added another tranche of approximately 40 hotels to the group that we were tasked with reopening post-COVID. So as we uh, started to look at the patterns that were emerging uh, during uh, the COVID lockdown, we realized that some hotels had better prospects of reopening and getting back to full volume and buoyant trading levels quite quickly. And those were defined by the leisure um, and more remote hotels. So anything on the coast or in the Lake District or in the Cotswolds, the traditional tourist spots were um, immediately reopened and back up to pretty significant full occupancy levels. So that's been a, a wonderful joy to behold, and it's continued through until about now in October. Business on the books for November is looking rather sketchy in those hotels, but certainly it's held up as well as we could possibly have hoped for. By contrast, London, Birmingham, Manchester, and in Scotland has just been beastly. I think I looked at a couple of hotels last night, 9% occupancy in in London, a couple of our hotels in Manchester, similar, Uh, one hotel holding up at 35% 35% occupancy, and we're pleased. Now, normally, that property would have been high 80s or early 90% occupancy. Now, you could do some of the cost management by reducing the payroll, but if you're removing talent from your business and people you have real high expectations for their future career, it breaks your heart when you have to give them such horrendous news. But I come back to the point that um, the government's attitude now is put them on the dole because it's cheaper to pay them dole money than any other form of support. Um, I don't exactly know what Dominic Cummings takes for breakfast, but it's clearly not a, a porridge that I eat. And if he could just tell us what the hell he's playing at, what he's trying to get Boris Johnson to front up and do on his behalf would be would be very enlightening because at the moment that everything seems to point towards destruction. It's like uh, you, you've been given some cards of uh, surprise trading, uh, a bit like you've seen restaurants in the, in the, uh, in the out areas or the regions are performing better than, than London. But then you also been giving some very difficult cards where normally there will be very big trading. What are you doing to, you know, because we, you know, we all are trying in hospitality. Uh, it is an industry of grit, you know, people adapt very quickly that has been done a lot of great things there's people that help the nss there's frontline employees has been done a lot of creative things you know of uh, delivery so on uh, the industry is trying to find new revenue stream to bounce back what what are you done as a, a hotel operation to actually bounce back and trying to you know recruit some revenue or find new ways to to make money well, we've got schemes running with pretty much all of those. At the beginning, um, as we were closing the hotels down, we did everything we could to embrace the NHS and key worker support. We we offered our hotels to local councils to put people who were having to isolate in. in. So we ran that program for a while. But uh, after a few months, we realized it wasn't sustainable because we weren't getting sufficiently steady uh, numbers of people who were actually using that facility to warrant being open. So... We closed those hotels back down, and we've now put in place uh, some of our hotels are operating dark kitchens, so we're providing 
food, which is directly booked into online distributors, uh, the likes of Uber and uh, Deliveroo and so on. So we've we've done that. And where we've been able to open hotels, we've just put them back to normal. Um, We haven't uh, taken our own existing menus and tried to go take those to home delivery service to to people just yet, although we are working on one particular hotel where I think the chef has such a good local following that if we did offer his meals as a home delivery, it would work. And we're just working on that at the moment. But the issue there is that we've reopened the hotel and the uh, the kitchen and the main restaurants are already working to a high level. So is it would that be too little, too late? I guess one point I, I, I do want to cheer everybody up by listening in uh, here is that if we were going to bring in something to completely change our attitude to our carbon footprint then brexit has then then this particular issue before brexit has has brought this about the 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 lack of travel the lack of air miles the 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 lack of um, fuel consumption has fallen because of the falling off of the cliff Um, at a stroke you can see how much um, healthier our bit of the planet should be because we just haven't been consuming that amount of energy now if we're going to retain any key lesson from what's happened as a benefit, how do we go about our new lives when we come out of this COVID crisis and make sure we're not destroying the planet at the same time? So I hope there's some sage thinkers out there who are really working that one out to to give us the proper guidance notes to make sure we don't go back to old habits. Yeah, how how do you uh, see it? Of course, uh... It's it's you know the, the the biggest surprise in all this, and that's in principle you said is that you know maybe we just got a, a wake up call all of us that we maybe we need we we need to react now and uh, and as David Attenborough has been out with his uh, newest documentary as well, which if uh, I, I if you've seen it, it's like quite a, a horror show, and then uh, you know the, but we can do something. And it's all about all the small things we do when we consume and and we eat and we travel and so on. But what what do you think that's gonna be when we look at the industry now? It looks like we are in a, what you call a meltdown, burn it down to the ground almost. Uh, as you say, it's easier to to uh, put people on the dole than keep them in jobs. It looks like we are we we're going so far back that we can't even imagine we ever been there. And it's like you know, is there if you have to look you know on an optimistic view or a bit more future oriented, is there an opportunity to rebuild? And create a different industry that that actually can have a positive impact on people, communities, and the planet, and be profitable uh, at the same time. Well, I think there's two issues here. If you looked at what was happening in the high street in any event before COVID, long before COVID, people were no longer shopping in the same way in their local high streets as they used to. Now, maybe that will reemerge because people are not traveling so far. And if you look at the coffee shops in the in the high streets, it seems to be the local hero, individually owned coffee shop that's got its community to support it, whereas some of the big brands have found it much more difficult to get the footfall. Um, and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, um, it's it's what is happening. Um, in, in terms of Brexit, however, um, if we think this year's been bad, wait till next year hits us. Only we got COVID, we've decided to dissociate ourselves from all sorts of other uh, people. And we're putting in a, an embargo on people visiting this country, let alone working here. And I, I find that reprehensible. I just find the meanness uh, and the, the lack of humanity that goes with it, something I, I don't want to be affiliated or associated with. The, the concept of 
aggressively trying to turn back people who are trying to cross the border when they're legally seeking asylum seems wrong. Uh, the idea of uh, Farage's garage appearing all over Kent um, uh, as, as giant lorry park and needing a, a, a passport to get into Kent now. I just, what are we trying to do here? We're, one of the greatest fellowships that's ever been created and has blocked and mitigated the, the, the war-torn strife that Central Europe has had for centuries. And we decided to forget all that and just go our own way. And if there were ever a time that we needed allies and friendship and humanity and just good neighbourliness, this is it. And we're, we're going even further away from it. So the, the quicker that um, we realise that it's all been a dreadful mistake and ask Europe to forgive us and, and come back again, the, the better. But I know it, it may not happen. It's quite, uh, you know, overwhelming thinking about we're already in this wave that's called a pandemic. Then we have a, a Brexit on top of it, double whammy. And then there's all the other consequences led out of that recession, uh, lack of talent, you know, Melton Health, Melton Health crisis. You know, you can you can keep on spinning. You know, this uh, a death spiral if you start analyzing it. But wh- where do you see the the industry within all that? Because that's an interesting, uh, uh, you know, because a lot of people have forgot about Brexit. But wh- where's the industry? You know, if you should get your give your best educated guess within the next twelve to eighteen months, Robin. Well, where do you think it is, and what's going on? I think. Um, we're going through a period of Darwinism, and whether we like it or not, it's going to happen. A number of hotels and hotel-related businesses are going to disappear permanently. A number of properties that would have been fantastic for coach parties to tour in the past, coach parties full of 75-year-olds in some kind of giant portable petri dish traveling around the country, is less likely to be an attractive proposition going forward to the hotels that used to cater for that audience will just find that they can't sustain that model and will either be represented to the world as nursing homes or um, uh, dementia centers or sold off as apartments. So I think there'll be a cannibalization of the total volume of hotels. I think the speed with which hoteliers were trying to build yet more hotel after yet more hotel will, will slow. I do think there needs to be a reassimilation of what the high street is for and I can only see a world in which the high street is populated again if people move back into city centres and have apartments and, and homes on those high streets because even the charity shops have been in retreat as and they were the last resort to make sure that shops were open at a time when um, so few, few businesses were still open for trade. But you walk down pretty much any high street in Britain now and it's it's um, it's really sparse. Um, so I, there's going to be a correction. There will be less employment. Um, that's going to stick around for some time. Um, people will still, however, want to explore and need to explore the British countryside and visit parts of Britain that they've not witnessed before um, because they can't go abroad. And I think that's likely to be around for some time. So in terms of domestic tourism, for those properties that are still offering a traditional high level of service and care and warmth, I, I think they'll do okay. But what is it that Darwin used to say about the survival of the fittest and the and the weakest won't survive? That that's a truism. Um, and I have to look to some of our own hotels as to how many of those are fully realizable again before we're we're, we're certain what will what will become of this. 
the rise of the internet as, as some way to do shopping is extraordinary. Pretty much every person in the country will have bought something this week off Amazon. Do we accept it and just go with it? Or do we challenge it and say, we don't want to live in that world? We want to have the social nature of going shopping and meeting people and engaging with shopkeepers and shop assistants. I don't know. I, I, I think we're, we're the, the rise and rise of the delivery service and people won't and people will get more, more and more antisocial. Changing the subject slightly, um, you may remember that I'm quite passionate about hotels doing a better job to anticipate and care for the needs of people with disability. And I've set up a, an awards scheme called the Blue Badge Access Awards, which is in its fourth year now. But one of the most sensible sentences I heard the other day from someone who's in a wheelchair is, well, now everybody's stricken down and having on lockdown they'll have a much better recognition of what it's like to live with so much compromise and lack of freedom in your life, because that's what it's like to be disabled. Maybe we'll, a little bit of compassion and uh, and a a wider awareness of what it's like for other people less well-off than ourselves will emerge from this, and maybe we'll become a stronger community as a result. I think it's very interesting what you say there, because it's one of the things we should talk about uh, on this conversation, because it actually ties into an interview I did some weeks ago with Victoria Williams, who runs uh, a company that's trying to make customer experience better for deaf people with a disability of hearing disability. And they are really struggling in this environment, because if you have to wear a mask and the people that serve you wear a mask, it's very difficult for you to communicate. And CC found two things. He found actually there was more compassion and care because people suddenly understood that 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 must be dreadful. That must be feeling even further, you know, outside society than you already was. And then she's also had the experience of the you know the the missed opportunity for businesses that hadn't seen you need these disabled people that actually needs you know a bit a bit of a different experience than the cookie cutter kind of thing. They actually just need you to take your time. And it's it's a massive market as well. If you took the commercial angle, as he said, on it, if we just become pure commercials, he said, this is we are talking about you know twelve million people with hearing disability, and there's lots of other disabilities as well alone in the UK. So massive market opportunities as well here. Again, you know, uh, thinking about caring and so on. If every hotelier and hotel designer got together and said. We would like the rooms that we've allocated for the disabled customer by statute, because we have to, to look exactly like or even be better than a normal room. Why does it have to look so medicalized or or gloomy? Why can't it have a sense of joy and zest about it? Why can't you have a disabled suite? Um, Why can't you call them anything other than disabled rooms? Um, We've stumbled across the term liberty rooms in um, an academic exercise we were doing in the company. So we think that is a slightly more empowering word, and we're certainly starting to refer to those rooms which we've worked hard to uh, put a bit of joy into for a disabled customers, the Liberty Room. And the trick, of course, is to make sure that that person doesn't feel as though they've been given a second-class experience. They want to feel every bit as important as the able-bodied guest. And uh, there's a commercial case. How many times do you hear a receptionist Say to the able-bodied person, I'm sorry, sir, I put you in the disabled room. How do you, here's, here's your discount. So you build in disappointment straight away. Yeah. Um, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, sir, I've only got the best room in the house left. It's the disabled suite. Um, and I'm going to sting you for a lot of money for it. So, And you're, you're going to be grateful because it's a good thing. 
<laughs> You're absolutely right because I've actually experienced that last year in a hotel in London. It was a and it was a great room. It was probably the best room in the the hotel, you know. Uh, and then it was exactly the same kind of uh, lingo that was used about it. Uh, it was almost like uh, we're very sorry, you know. That uh, like I would be upset about it in a way. If I haven't been told that, I haven't really probably even thought about it. I just thought that was a great room, you know. That was it. I think there's a bit of inspiration here as well, Michael. If you if you look at the utterly selfless acts of kindness and fortitude that, that the NHS have shown, uh, it's been remarkable. How many people would, in any other line of work, volunteer to go off to work each day, knowing that they're much, much more likely to be killed by the illness they're trying to prevent hitting other people? And I just think that's breathtaking how well served we've been. And most particularly, how many of those people are not British-born? And this ridiculous idea that we're now going to limit our borders and prevent people from getting in, um, when uh, so many of our essential services in Britain are populated by an entirely mixed... We live in a global economy. It's a, it's a global world. You you eat out, you expect Bangladeshi influences, you expect Arabian influences, you love a bit of Italian food, and yet somehow we're putting in self-imposed apartheid into this country. We're even trying to stuff off the Northern Irish, the Scots and the Welsh at the same time. So if someone can please accept what kind of genocide we're anticipating, I'd love to know. It's, it utterly confuses me. Yeah, and as I guess it's not only talent, as you say, to the hospitality sector. There's many, many core uh, industries that's actually carrying the infrastructure of this country: service organizations, hospitals, so on. Where you know it's going to be there's going to be a lack of hands and talent as we we go forward, and that's going to have bigger consequences than a, a financial, uh, you know meltdown i would say well how how uh robin one question is probably also in the the audience uh here out there is that how do you keep yourself sane in all this because that's that is a huge responsibility you have you have many employees you have lots of assets you need to look after in all this how do you keep yourself you know centered balanced and feeling ready for business every day because it's a it's a high level of it's a high level of a business we play every day right now there's not there's not many breaks i have to say in terms of anxiety i'm probably at that stretch level of more more at that high stretch level of anxiety than i've ever been in my career because there's so many things completely beyond our control um and the way the government are currently behaving you're having to adapt to um, such extraordinary, confused li- lines of thinking and logic that it's so difficult to make any long-term plans. So it's tough. I, I, I'm very fortunate we have a board of five um, and we have all of us different skill sets, so we're reasonably complementary and I think we can fashion our way forward by tuning into each other and sharing uh, our, our issues. We've sort of at the beginning of lockdown, almost adopted a war cabinet approach in that we had a daily call with the senior board. We then had a daily comms meeting with all our senior personnel at general manager level. Um, We've done a huge amount to put some pastoral uh, activity in there online. So that's quizzes. It's um, um, some some fun sessions, uh, some uh, we even did some online line dancing, which was a bit of a spook. We roared laughter. And if I if I say to anything, my default button for high stress is just to find the, the humour. Um, 
I have to tell you one personal story. I, I'm very, very lucky to be alive. I, I contracted a, an illness called Guillain-Barré syndrome back in December '04, which in a short space of time on Christmas Eve '04 um, invaded my body and, and paralyzed me from the neck downwards. You, effectively, it's a, a trigger to your immune system where the immune system thinks it's under attack, gets the wrong email and attacks itself. My body closed down and I found myself completely paralyzed from the neck downwards. So um, to answer your question literally, um, because of that uh, level of discomfort and awkwardness in my life, um, COVID-19 is a bit of a walk in the park by comparison, really. Um, learning how to sit, how to stand and how to walk again was really, really uh, difficult when you you found your body unable to, to do anything for yourself. So. I managed to keep saying this time round because I'm not where I was back in 04. <laughs> um, yeah, and I guess also when you recover for something like that, you, you learn some very valuable lessons in life you can't really learn without being in that situation. If you can transfer them into your current situation, you can really leverage that. I, I, I think you're right. But one thing you, you, you must do in, in, in life is to, try and see the other person's perspective. And I think if we are guilty of anything over the last few decades, um, uh, perhaps it's, it's too much selfishness, too much self-interest, and not enough uh, acceptance or empathy for those around us who have uh, uh, different pressures on them in their life and are trying to cope with them. There isn't a person you meet who hasn't got an issue somewhere. Um, and uh, I think we should all be a lot more compassionate with each other than perhaps we have been over the last few decades we are getting to the end uh, robin um that's the last question i want to ask you and also want to leave the, the the listeners out there with maybe a bit of inspiration help tools whatever so i always ask people what is the the top three uh, advice you would give to anyone it could be a leader in the industry a person in the industry right now as we stand to date with the knowledge you have well i think the first thing to do is a lot of listening i think by working with your stakeholders and your employees and your fellow workers, a number of them will just need and really appreciate the opportunity to talk. So just by assuming that you're in a linear relationship, I don't think is enough. I think you need to be a lot more empathetic. If, if you have a number of people working with you, remember their birthdays. Don't forget the common courtesy of picking up the phone or, or going to see them and saying, how are you? Just tell me what's happening with the rest of your life. So I, I think that's the first lesson. The second lesson is a very obvious one, which is cash. If you've got any, hold on to it. If you uh, are thinking of spending cash, please try not to, um, because it's going to be a very short supply over the next few months. Um, and I think that the, the last point I would make is that there will be some sunny uplands eventually. Uh, Boris Johnson will no longer be in power. Um, at Boris Donald Trump will um, have been removed from from office, so there will be some good news to come uh, in terms of leadership. Um, uh, but I'm I am convinced that uh, we we will find a vaccine and a cure for COVID sooner or later. It may have some side effects in the short term, but we will get a, a control over it. But if we think this is the end of future pandemics, it's not. It's just the beginning. We live in such a, a transferable world. I have a little business which makes products on soft drinks on a white label basis. We import one product from Korea, another from Argentina, a couple from uh, Belgium, 
one from Austria and one ingredient from Scotland. Um, you know, that, and that's in a British product. Um, so we are also interdependent as a global economy now, and we just really need to think about our place in that. Um, and if, if we've been dumped on our backsides and given a spanking recently, uh, the one piece of really good news is it has to force us to think again about what we're doing with our planet. Good, Robin. That was an amazing uh, wrap-up of the conversation. Uh, and I think you, you're absolutely right. The one thing I, I was thinking and reflecting on is you said that, that thing about listening, I think that's going to be key for anyone at any level. We actually need to give each other time and listen to each other. That's the biggest help we could do right now. Because sometimes you just need to get the frustration off your chest or... Uh, the way when you talk about a thing, you actually found the solution yourself. And you know, often in leadership, uh, guilty myself as well, you actually want to come up with the answer, but you maybe will really have a really bad answer to it because you're not very close to it. So you actually have to listen to these people that deals with the problem every day. So yeah, very good advice, that one. All right, Michael. Well, thank you so much. It's It's been a pleasure to, to talk to you, and I hope that's um, been moderately entertaining and not too many of your listeners have fallen asleep just yet. So. Where can uh, people check out more about Robin and Bespoke Hotels if they want to do that? Uh, well, if they want to find out about Bespoke, it's bespokehotels.com. Uh, if you'd like to find out about um, uh, our accessible program, it's bluebadgeaccessaward.com. Um, and if you want to find out about me, I guess just tap in Robin Shepherd Hotel into Google and you'll probably see all sorts of inappropriate behavior <laughs> over the last. 20 years, unfortunately, committed to permanent presence on the internet. <laughs> Good, Robin. Thank you so much. And uh, I send uh, you, your family, the team in Bespoke Hotels, all the power and energy you need to, to get, uh, get through uh, this very challenging time. Thank you so much, Michael. Pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much, Robin. Really great to get this strong picture of the whole situation both from a political point of view but also how you see the industry is going to evolve over the coming years and also a super great advice in the end about the importance of listening to your stakeholders you have to understand them and their needs before you can get your own fulfilled if you want to get inspired about how to build a great hotel business please also tune in to episode 11 Creating a Grand Hotel Experience with Andrew Mosley, the General Manager of The Grand in Brighton. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please give us a like, share, rate, or subscribe to one of our channels. And tune in next time for another interview. And in the meantime, find out more about us and subscribe to the community and download free leadership tools at hospitalitymavericks.com or use the links in the show notes. And remember to sign up to the Facebook group for The Game Changers. If you want to be on the forefront of what progressive hospitality leaders are up to in the right now. Thanks for listening and be maverick.